0: And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thanks, Faith. Um, so let's jump right in. If you are new to Christianity, or like me, did not, um, you know, you weren't raised in a Christian home as a child, um, you're not familiar with this term called Advent. Um, and so, I actually I shared with you guys last week that I was not introduced to the term Advent until I started coming to redemption about five or six years ago. And Advent simply means arrival. It's a time in which historically the church has um, looked back, putting themselves in the place of people who are hearing about the coming of Jesus. So after Thanksgiving, there's this time of four weeks, four Sundays, that we look and we uh, long for the arrival, the Advent of Jesus. And at the same time, we have kind of a hindsight perspective that we not only get to put ourselves in their shoes, but we also know that Jesus is going to return again. And there's a rhythm during the season. Usually you, you talk about a week on um, hope and a week on faith, a week on love, a week on joy. And historically, well, I say historically, we've only done Advent once, but um, that's honestly what we want to do moving forward. But um, because of the vision and some of the things that we're talking about as we move into 2017, we're doing it a little bit different uh, uh, for us, okay? And so we're actually taking this time, the four weeks, and we're looking at the story, the, 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 the birth of Jesus and how he arrived on the scene, the advent, the coming of Jesus Christ, and we're looking at it from a bottom-up perspective. Meaning, what happens is, is if you read the Bible, you see that the story of Jesus Christ, who it comes to, is not favored people is not high prestigious people um so the example that i gave last week was if you can imagine somebody who's opening up a new restaurant uh, restaurants are opening up all over in the west valley as the west valley continues to expand and usually what happens when these restaurants are opened um the, the owner opens it up the night before the eve before of the grand opening and invites all of his friends and all of his family or all of her friends and all of her family and invites them in and then invites people who are kind of prestigious in that world, maybe if you open up a crate bar, invite people who, who kind of op- open it up a coffee shop and know it, and you invite these people in, and they get a first look, a first glimpse of what the restaurant is going to be like, right? And here's what's awesome about the biblical story. As Mark tells us, Jesus steps on the scene, and he says, now is the time, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the grand opening. Jesus is about to do work, but what we see is this kind of unveiling, or behind the scenes, this opening eve uh, uh, operations seeing it before it opens the night before where jesus is unveiled to certain people who are not like those people who are not the prestigious so god essentially says show me who's powerful in your mind and i'm telling you who i'm inviting to my opening eve restaurant grand opening i'll show you who i'm inviting inviting and it's this beautiful display that we see uh, uh, for the, the, the four weeks of Advent that we're going to be going through. This bottom-up perspective with no Drake references at all, I promise you. This bottom-up reference that we'll see over and over that this is what God does. Now, um, you can see uh, this. I want to show you the four weeks that we're going to be covering. Because last week, um, what we did is we talked about how Mary, um, at her core, is one of those undesirables. So she is a woman not respected in that culture. She is a teenage woman Definitely not respected in that culture. She is a teenage woman who is not married. Absolutely definitely not respected in that culture. And now she's pregnant. So here, and we walk through this, so we see the first uh, week an unmarried, pregnant, and poor teenage woman the second week, which is today, we're going to talk about lowly workers. The third week, we're going to talk about Jesus as a refugee. And then um, the fourth, we're going to talk about after their prime, two prophets that are brought were people we would have probably thrown in a retirement home. Um, God uses this to announce this. So, so the grand opening of what we see, the advent, the telling of the story of the coming of Christ has seen from the biblical story of people who God says is strong. And we define these people as one word, and I'm going to throw the definition up there. It's the marginalized. And how we define the marginalized, the, to marginalize something, is to relegate to an unimportant or powerless position within a society or a group. That is who the gospel comes to first. This is, and, and what I tried to say last week, man, is God is the worst captain at recess ever. Because he's calling Abraham and Sarah, who are past their prime, he's calling a weak shepherd boy and David, A stuttering Moses, a whining Jeremiah. God is not picking up the huge relics in society. No, he's saying, give me your poor. Give me your weak. Give me your marginalized. And I'll show you how legit I am. And so this is how the story starts. And so for us, to combat the season of commercialism, to combat the season of consumerism, to combat the season of individualism, to think that for whatever reason we have prestige and power uh, during this time, we're going to see the Christmas story from the bottom up the way that it's told in the biblical narrative. There's a, a, some things I, I want to read. Um, it's in 1 Corinthians. You probably have already turned your Bible uh, to uh, Luke, and that's fine. You can keep your finger there. But if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 1 very quickly, I want to read four verses to you that I think are uh, monumental in why we're doing this series the way that we are, because our goal is to learn from the marginalized. Okay? This is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. It'll be on the screen for you as well. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So we're going to roll back what we can this morning. And we're going to get at one idea, because last week what we learned from Mary was the marginalized can teach us to rejoice when our our world is falling apart. The marginalized can teach us to rejoice when our world is falling apart because God sees us. The marginalized can teach us to have a big God because they need a big God, and so do we. The marginalized can teach us that there's no room for pride and arrogance, and the marginalized can teach us to remember that God has a big plan. It's not just about this Advent or last year's Advent or next year's Advent. It's a part of something bigger, and God in this whole process uses the marginalized, He uses who people are deemed um, misfit for society, unknown, people we don't respect. And this is good news for us. And I'm going to explain how it is as we go through this because there's one thing. With Mary, we went through bullet points we can learn from Mary. This morning, we're going to go through one thing that we can learn from these shepherds. Let's get at it. Luke chapter 2. You're already starting in verse eight, but I want to, for the sake of context, provide verses one through seven. And this is what it says. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Corneus was governor of Syria and all went to be uh, registered each at his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David So we know this story, but verses 1 through 7 give us something that we probably miss. And it's something that I think Luke is intentionally laying out as a physician. Remember, he's writing this account because there's other accounts out there, but he's giving his direct account. And here's his point. What I'm about to tell you did not happen in a galaxy far, far away. What I'm about to tell you did not happen in Middle Earth. It did not happen in Narnia. No, it happened about 7,000 miles from here. There's a place. There's an inn. There was a building, there was the smell, there was the sight. This is a factual account and he does it in such a way that we can historically look up Caesar Augustus. We can look up the registration, we can look up the governor of Syria, we can see that there's a place of Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. There are people who have been registered. This is his point. What I'm about to tell you is real. This is a real thing. That's an awesome context for us to start. So whatever is said from this moment on, there's factual points. This is a historical moment that we're about to lay out. And we pick it up in verse 8. If you're new to this, um, to redemption, uh, I'm going to read verse, explain it, verse, explain it. We're going to have a big Bible study together. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds. So during this time when Mary is, she's out, essentially what happens, uh, Mary and Joseph come uh, onto the scene. Uh, she's pregnant now. She, she and um, Joseph arrive because of the census that is being taken. They got to go and, and be registered. And while she's there, she um, goes into labor. And then during this time in that same region that was just described, there are shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Okay, we're going to talk a lot about shepherds because ultimately this is from the bottom-up perspective. But before we get to how they are from the bottom-up perspective, let's just talk about what a shepherd is. And if you grew up in church, you probably like know everything I'm about to tell you, but just so we're on the same page. um, A shepherd is living out in the fields with countless sheep minimum 100 150 sheep um they're sleeping out there with the sheep they have uh, you know uh, either a staff or a a shepherd's crook you know so you can pull the sheep in they're fighting off wolves or any type of uh uh, people are trying to eat the the lambs as prey they're drinking the the um drinking the milking a lamb in that that's why i did that um uh they're they're drinking the milk from a lamb uh they're, they're doing all this at some points they're eating it but at the same time um You know, though they're living off of everything that comes from uh, all all these sheep that are out there, they're also protecting. And so there's this relationship that is built. Um, Josephus would say that, uh, he's a a Jewish historian, he's gone on record as saying that shepherds during this time knew so well the sheep, some 200 sheep, that they knew them all by name, right? So we look at a mass amount of sheep and we go, yeah, that's sheep. I I don't know what to tell you. And they're going, no, no, that's Frank. And that's Bill. and, And that's Cheryl. She's crazy, right? They know they know their sheep really well. And, and there's this relationship, right? And so they would wear these uh, clothes because they're living out there that would keep them warm in the winter, that would keep them uh, reflecting the sun during the summer. Uh, and, and this was kind of their life. They were nomads. And, and, and the best way that I can kind of explain their vocation specifically is the way that we can think of a factory worker. Meaning um, there's a middleman between them and the rest of society. So if I'm in the city and I'm a Jew and I want to make a sacrifice, I need to go get a lamb. So they would go get this lamb from these shepherds. But they as the, the people who are living in that city wouldn't Go. What would happen is a middle person who is selling those sheep would go get the get the uh, uh, sheep, gather the sheep, bring it back to the city. And so, so if you could think of a factory worker, no one's wondering who made their Fitbit. No one's going, was this George who made their Fitbit? No one, no one's uh, wondering or question any of that. But ultimately, what's going on within this whole process is there's this middleman, and so that they're not interacting with. So just so you understand a little bit about these shepherds, they are at this moment um, in this actual place at night. Um, doing this job, taking care of the sheep, and, and then uh, our account takes place. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So here are the shepherds, in this account, we don't know specifically how many shepherds there are, but let's just say there's a couple shepherds sitting there. Suddenly, uh, the glory of the Lord is shining around them. There's an angel before them, and this angel begins to speak. And this angel, what, what is very important, I need you to see in these first couple verses, prefaces his announcement. So he doesn't jump right into his announcement, but he prefaces what he's about to say. And he starts, like all the other angels to this point of start. don't be scared, and you're like... Yeah, that's easy for you to say. So here they are. Don't be scared. And then he makes two things. He makes a statement about, uh, prefaces uh, what he's about to say with this statement, and then he gives an adjective to this preface, meaning he says this. um, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. What I'm about to tell you will be offered to all. All people. It is good news for all people. And, and this word that is offered, this word that is, he is prefacing, is I'm bringing you good news. And what I need you to know about that is in Greek, that good news, those two words, is one word, euangelion. It's the word where we get gospel. Literally translated, the angel is saying to these shepherds, Hey, don't be afraid. I'm bringing you the gospel. I'm bringing you the gospel. And this gospel is going to bring great joy to all people. This is good news. This is so good news. Listen to what's going on. Now, uh, from here, we, we, we get this account, but I just need you to understand and, and see that preface because I, I think it's important as we go into verse 11 it says this. So there's the preface. Here's the statement. Here is what he's been getting at, what the good news is, and what joy, how joy is about to come to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Again, this day in an actual place, not in like, not far, far away, not in Narnia, again, not any far, anything there, somewhere in a place, this baby is born. Now, hear me, because this is where Um, In first service my mic went out and I got to yell. So I can't yell as much as I want to right now. So I'm just going to be really dramatic in everything I'm about to say. This is the first time. This is it. This is the start that God is choosing when God is choosing and how God is choosing to do it. Proclaim the gospel to the public. He's going, hey, I'm inviting you in just so you know, I want you to see what this is. Now, the reason this is so awesome, because he's using these shepherds to do this, and as he proclaims this gospel, it's this reminder, here's the good news, plain and simple, a Savior is born. A Savior. Now, I, I, I wish I can like draw out what has become so calloused in this statement. I wish I can like, remind us of the beauty. The example I've given to you before is, Corbin, I remember when my oldest son was six months old and I went to a high school graduation, and um, I've used this example over and over, but I think it's perfect because here is my son, and the graduation's over, and we're going to find the person that we were there for the graduation, and it was at Chaparral High School, and we're on the football field, and after the graduation, fire uh, works are going up and they're, they're exploding, okay? So to be clear, fire is bursting in the sky, okay? Fire is exploding in the sky. And my son, he's six months, he cannot stop watching the fire bursting in the sky. Okay? And so he's watching all that's going on, and I look across the field, and I'll never forget it. Everyone's just kind of talking. Fire is bursting above their heads. And they're just kind of talking. Now, why is this? Because my son's six months old. This is the first time he's ever seen fire bursting in the sky. And so he's amazed by it, but we've seen it before. And that's the same story. We know Jesus, the Savior, He is Christ, the Lord, he's come. You guys, this is good news, and it should bring joy. Now, if I can't draw the excitement out of you, allow the narrative to. Because immediately what happens is the angel goes, okay, here's how you can know what I'm telling you is true. I want you to go down the road. I've been a couple miles away. I want you to go down there and you'll see this this man, this baby man here, this God incarnate in this manger. You'll see him. There's no room in the end. You're going to find them. And then something amazing happens. But but look at uh, what happens in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you, what I just described. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Okay. From this moment, this angel is proclaiming to these shepherds or what's going on, okay? Here's what happens in my house. When something happens outside um, that's really exciting, like, I don't know, a a bird dies or something, okay? Um, Titus or Corbin and Eve will all come running to tell Candace and I the story. And so Titus, my middle son, will start to tell the story, and he'll, um, and then like um, like the bird, it was like, um, um, and it was, okay? And Corbin is behind him going, get to the point, okay? And so he butts in, right, they're standing in the doorway, my turn to tell the story. And he's like telling the story, and then all of a sudden he's like, yeah. And then like, um, and then like, so now Eve, she's about to turn four, she, she owns the place. Neither of you idiots can tell the story, I'll tell the story. So she goes, in, no, daddy, 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 okay? She wants to tell the story, okay? Here's what happens, this angel's telling the story, and it's almost as if the other angels go, Dude, get to the point already. And so they burst open the sky and go, we got to say something about this. So this is the account that we get, okay? This angel's talking. You'll see him swaddling clothes. And they're like, yes, swaddling clothes. Let's go. Okay, that's it. I can't take this anymore. Suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God saying, boom, sky bursts open. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is well pleased. So they can't help but get to the punchline of the joke. They can't help but tell the story. Let's get to it. And you know what the good news is? The gospel is, you know what's going to bring joy? Why this is such a big deal is because your Bibles end at Malachi, man. And for 400 years, that little page that is blank, you don't get Matthew. And so for 400 years, they're wondering where is God. For 400 years, they haven't heard anything from God. For 400 years, there's but silence. God, where are you? And all they know in this moment is their story tells them God at one point made things so good. And yet they live in the brokenness of their life. They experience the brokenness from day to day. And here's the moment the angels go, peace, peace has come. So we spent last year an entire week on this one word. Because in the Old Testament, it's used as one word, 230 some times in the New Testament, over 90 times. And in the New Testament, the word that is used here is reina. It's, it's a, a reine. Sorry, we'll get to that other Greek word. I'm going to drop a bunch of Greek words on you. Sound cool. Um, uh, a reina. It's this idea of not just the absence of war, but, but there's this counterpart to it. Um, that we talked about last year. And so here's this word, reine has come to the earth. There's all this brokenness that you've, you're experiencing. You know there are systematic injustices that are part of our every single day life. Here it is, but I'm telling you, peace, look at me, look at me very closely. You trying to earn God, you don't have to anymore. He's brought peace. You feeling like you're so far from God, you never would be able to deserve him. Look at me, he's brought Peace. And we know this in the Old Testament, but see, there's this counter word that's used in the Old Testament that we don't fully understand, and it's ultimately what undergirds what the angels are so excited about. It's the word shalom. It's not just like this lack of, of, of war or the ceasefire. No, no, no. It's it's bigger, it's deeper. And the Jews know this. And so the angels are trying to proclaim this. Listen, the curse is being wrung backwards. This thing, we're on the clock, man. You will not experience what you experience right now forever. He's brought peace. Uh, Cornelius Plantica, I think, says it perfectly in talking about this idea of shalom, what the angels are so excited about and what we should be so excited about. Not just that one day we're here and then we'll be raptured up into heaven. No, there's something more about what God is doing in, in the season of Advent as he's restoring all things. Listen to how Cornelius Plantica describes it. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. In English, we call it peace, but it means far more than just peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as the creator and savior opens doors and speaks welcome to the creatures in whom he delights shalom in other words hear this shalom in other words is the way things are supposed to be you're not telling the story get there no no no. he's gonna make things back the way they're supposed to be be excited about this Every time you felt that relationship broken, every time you, you, you had that friend or you, you exp, uh, self experienced that miscarriage, every time there was loss, every time there was pain, hear me, he's going to fix it. He's going to fix it. Shalom is this restoring things back to the way they're supposed to be, and the angels can't help but announce this 400 years of silence is broken. This is good news. This is peace, and he has brought it I mean, imagine our relationships without like dissonance or misunderstanding. I don't just mean like dating relationships or engagement or marital relationships, all relationships. Imagine creation if we didn't suck it dry. Imagine the world without the Patriots, the Lakers, the Spurs. This is good news, okay? Tom Brady would not be here. That would be, yes, shalom, okay? So um, this is the announcement. And this is good for us to hear, because the shepherds um, are are, are being told this, and and they know this to be true, and they're hearing peace, shalom, has come. But I want to flip flip the the text on its head and get at why this is a big deal, um, specifically towards the poor and marginalized and who it comes to. So we read in verse 15, it says this, When the angels went away, so they're in the sky, then the angels go away, from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Okay? So this is the first thing. It's, it's getting going. They're, 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 like, the, the ball's starting to roll. It's picking up some momentum here. But it's interesting. There's a statement that I need you to grab onto because it seems kind of out of place with what's going on. As the angels disappear, the shepherds look at each other and say, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing. Now, it's interesting that, that the ESV and a lot of translators translate it as this thing um, because it, it is, it's this not, you could have just said like um, this announcement or whatever it is. And, and here's the second word, the word that I accidentally said. It's the word reina in Greek. Now, if you grew up in church, you might actually be familiar with this word. Um, there's something called reina ministries. Literally translated, it means word. Um, and in the Hebrew, again, the counterpart for this Septuagint word in Greek in the Old Testament, um, is the idea of what the prophets have spoken. that The shepherds recognize something. For 400 years, God hasn't said anything, and he does not come to Caesar Augustus. He doesn't come to the high priest. He comes to shepherds. They know in this moment, the word of God has come to us. This thing, this reina, this word from God has come to us. So this is where the marginalized conversation is important, because... Um, that's who we talked a little bit about who the shepherds were, but I want to um, read a quote from a guy named John MacArthur. Some of you guys love him, some of you hate him, some of you love to hate him, I don't know what it is, but um, uh, he has a, a great quote that I thought described shepherds well, so you understand how crazy this moment is, that peace, shalom, is being announced to the world. The fact that you don't have to earn your rights into God, that it is by faith and faith alone, that's on the table. This is such good news is brought to shepherds. Listen to how crazy this is. John MacArthur says this, shepherds had a hard time, first of all, maintaining religious purity as the Pharisees defined it. They couldn't keep the Sabbath because sheep need constant protection. Shepherds spent most of their time in the fields away from society and had no influence to speak of. In modern terms, they were blue-collar workers, largely unnoticed by those in power. Shepherds were in the lower classes of society. The angels came and proclaimed the good news to the humblest of all people. The lowest people on the socioeconomic ladder would be the shepherds. They were unskilled, uneducated, untrained. They weren't allowed to give testimony in a court of law, just like Mary last week, if you remember that, because they were considered untrustworthy. They were the lowest of the low, and it was specifically to them that the heavenly message came. Okay, I need you to imagine you're dating a girl, and you want to marry her, you want to propose, and then I want you to imagine you text that to her. Okay? Or here you want to get this great job and you have this um, awesome resume. And then you begin to go on line paper and handwrite it and turn it in. This is how bonkers this moment is. No, no, no. Something that big, you don't text, dummy. Okay? And here, here we have the announcement of peace. And it's brought to shepherds. To shepherds. Lowest on the socioeconomic class. but Like, here they are. They can't even give wet witness uh, in this moment in court. How are they supposed to proclaim the word of God, the reign to people? God going, look how strong I am. Look how strong I am. Now, if this is good news for anyone, it is good news for them. And this is where um, my story a little bit... Uh, so here's, so growing up, right, um, grew up, grow, growing up around the poor um, and then really in high school making a transition to suburbia, there, there, were, there was a thing that I couldn't figure out how to categorize outside of the last couple years trying to work in my understanding of how people live. And, and here's what I mean. Um, when, when you're amongst the poor, their way of life is hardship. So when something terrible happens, they're sad, but in a lot of ways they're not surprised by it. Like they're just going, that's life, man. What, like, what you, okay? And then making my way into suburbia, being a pastor in Scottsdale, it was almost like, it, Like what? Trials? This is ridiculous. I'm so mad at God right now. It was like this surprise where, where the poor see this. And, and for anyone, to, this, to be good news, it would be the marginalized. Because they're going, all we know is pain. All we know is not even being interacting with society. All we know is being seen as lowly. You're telling me it's not always going to be like that. You're telling me in some type of kingdom way, everything I view society is turned on its head and it's upside down. You're telling me I'm important? This is good news. This is good news. Now, from there... um, it goes on to say this, and I want to tie why this being good news with the shepherd and then kind of start to wrap all of this up. In verse 16, it says this. I'm going to read 16 all the way through 21. I wanted to break it up, but because of time, I'm not going to. It says this, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, this being uh, the shepherds are the ones who are going, the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, I love that it says it. Just pause real quick. Notice it says it. Um, a lot of commentators struggle with it. I think Luke is beautiful in saying it because they know it's not just a he laying there. It's like this word of God. Like, oh, It's awesome. Um, and, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So they tell the shepherds are telling what happened to them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Because right, remember, she had her own encounter with an angel. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all uh, they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And the end of the eight days when, when he was, Jesus, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived uh, in the womb. Okay, so... Um, here's why I read this whole thing. Here's what happens. Uh, God's doing something within Mary, the poor and marginalized. God is doing something within the shepherds, the poor and marginalized, and then suddenly he starts to bring them together. And now they're like telling stories. Mary's pondering these things in her heart. The shepherds are all jacked about what's going on, and you have the nativity scene. But what's so interesting about this whole thing is as you have these poor and marginalized coming together, there's this mantra of not just marginalization, but they are humbled by God using them. And if we can learn the thing, I said we're going to learn one thing it's that ultimately james 4 this perfectly that at the core of everything christianity is is god is opposing the proud and he is giving grace to the humble so he is looking at the people who otherwise don't think they deserve anything and have joy about receiving all that they have and he's going i want them on my team so this is a part of how i want to finish I think and believe that um, this is a microcosm of what God is doing historically and even right now, the very day that you're living in. Meaning, this gospel starts very small, and it starts in the Middle East, but you know what's interesting about it starting in the Middle East? As it goes to, like, Alexandria, that's where, like, so much of the councils that we have and the creeds that we have happen in the same area, right? The same exact area. And those same exact areas right now are 99% Muslim. See, as Christians, we don't have... Um, a specific go-to to pray we don't have salt lake and and and, and we don't have uh, um uh what are muslims why can't i think of this um mecca yeah thank you very much we don't have mecca we don't have eight different temples for buddhism we don't have these things that we can go to pray christianity in this weird way is on the move it's it's constantly going and you know where it's going it's over and over and over going to the humble Those who are not so proud that they beat their chest and don't think they need it. Now, how we can know this to be true is America as as, as a test subject. So um, I'm going to throw some stats out. Not for the sake of throwing stats out, but just so you understand what is happening right now with our Christian brothers all around the world. The first one is to be aware of Christianity uh, since 2008 has been declining in America 1% every single year. And the 20 years prior to that was close to 1%. So in a word, Christianity is on the decline in the Western world. At the same time, listen to what this says. A century ago, 80% of Christians lived in North America. I got all this stuff from uh, the Washington Post and Pew Research and all that. So just, you know, I'm just making stuff up. Just this is what I think. Um, A century ago, 80% of Christians lived in North America and Europe compared to just 40% today. Meaning, um, if you go back 20 years ago, 80% of people who called themselves Christian lived in the Americas and in Europe. Right now, only 40%. Okay, so Which means they're going somewhere. Christianity is still growing, but it's not growing here. Why is that? What is going on? Listen, um, in 1980, more Christians were found in the global south than in the north for the first time in a thousand years. Today, the Christian community in Latin America and Africa alone account for one billion people. Meaning, you have the equator around the globe. Over year after year, century after century, here's what we have. Everything north of that equator has been known predominantly of Christians. And for the first time in, in 1980, there were more Christians proclaiming to follow Jesus Christ in the south of that equator than in the north. Guess where America is, right? So so, this is amazing, but, but it doesn't end there because uh, I, I think there's a beauty of what's going on. That there's one view. So the, the gospel is still growing, and we feel like it's, it's, it's not here, but, but maybe sometimes it is, but it's growing somewhere. It's growing somewhere like this virus, finding all those who are humble, finding all those who are marginalized, finding all those who are weak, and it's going to them, and it's offering itself to them. And so here's the gospel, and guess where it's growing? First, let's start in Africa. Over 100 years ago, Christians grew from less than 10% on the continent of Africa to the population today of 500 million. That's about 50%. One, of, one out of every four Christians, that's 25% of Christians in the world presently are in Africa. And Pew Research Center estimates that that will grow to 40% by 2030. So, so let me just lay it down. America, though I love and I will cheer for America every four years when Olympics come around, hear that, Okay. Um, But the reality is, America is not our Mecca. It is not God country. Just to be clear, if we're speaking uh, strictly stats, strictly stats, Africa, by 2030, will have more Christians than any other continent on the planet. The gospel is spreading. But it's not just in Africa. Let's go to Asia. In the last century, Christianity grew at twice the rate of the population on that continent. (laughs) Okay, so, so... Every child that is born, two people are becoming Christians. Tell me God is not doing something. Every time a child is born in Asia, two people are becoming Christian. The, literally, God is saying, let's see who's faster. How fast can you reproduce and how fast can I make new, uh, newborn Christians? Let's see who's faster. I win. We're not done with Asia though. Listen to this. So, so uh, going on, they're growing at twice the rate. Asia's Christian population of 350 million is projected to grow to 460 million by 2025. Today, more Christian believers are found worshiping in China on any given Sunday than in the United States. So if we could just, China should be sending missionaries to us. But we're not done. Let's not forget about our brothers and sisters to the south of us. Latin America. The growth of Pentecostalism, which, um, if you don't know, Pentecostalism is a special place in my heart, and I would say this is healthy Pentecostalism— Yeah, I'm not going to explain all that. Um, The growth of Pentecostalism in Latin America is estimated to be um, three times the rate of Catholic growth. So if you know anybody who is from Mexico or Brazil, Catholicism seems to be the the mantra um, of um, of most of our Latino brothers and sisters, right? But what's happening right now, and if you're not aware of this, Christianity is growing at at, at three times the rate. Is that what I said, three times? Um, Yeah, three times the rate of Catholicism. So Christianity is blowing up there. Listen to this. Today, Brazil has more Pentecostal, so Pentecostalism is exploding there, than any other country on earth. One out of every 12 people alive today has a Pentecostal form of Christianity. That's not one out of every 12 people who are Christian. One out of 12 people who are alive today consider themselves Pentecostal. That's amazing. So so listen. In every single one of those continents, there are prestigious places. There are. There are high-rises. There are places that... But listen to me, that's not where the gospel's growing. It's growing in the slums. It's growing in the mud huts. It's growing in homes and underground churches. And and you know what the mantra is of all these people? Over and over, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And I'm not going to sit here and tell, you know, point out who's rich and who's not and and how we can determine that richness and how we can determine how poor it is and all that. But but listen, at the end of the day, here's what we do know. If we were to quote Jesus, it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a camel, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for him to get into the kingdom of God. There is something about the things that we have, the pride that we hold, the prestige we think we want to continue to strive for that is blinding us. And if we can learn anything from the shepherds, it's the word of God came to us? We're not worthy. So this is what I would offer to you. Um, Let's pretend this story that we read in Luke 2 is allegorical. It's obviously very much reality as I explained it. But in so many ways, it's almost as if like the Holy Spirit, like the angels, offering this to all of us. Hey, I'm telling you where you can find Jesus, and it's not in money. I'm telling you where you can find Jesus, it's in humiliation. It's in the barn next to the cows. And I'm offering this to you in hopes that you recognize I'm not, coming to the, I'm not bringing the gospel to you because of you. And if this is an allegorical kind of parody brought to us, hear me. It's there. It's there for us. That we would humble ourselves and we would follow after Jesus, that we would not think we are too low. We would not think we ourselves are too high. But the gospel has come to you, and all we have to do is humble ourselves and pray that God would give it to us in His good graces. His mercy is there. That's what we can learn from the shepherds. It's beautiful. It starts from the bottom. So I finish with, well, you guys know who I finish with my man Spurge. This is what he says. A long quote, but this is what is offered to you, what is offered to me. Whether we think we're okay, because we're never not. The beauty of the word evangelion is with the same word where we get a word evangelism from. I would argue and contend that we should evangelize Christians. We should be evangelizing ourselves, meaning we need to constantly remind ourselves of the gospel. You need to be literally translated, gospeled. I, I need to be gospeled. Okay, I need to be gospeled. You need to be gospeled over and over. But I hear someone say, I'm afraid to go to God this morning and confess that I am a sinner. Another says, I feel unfit to come. Oh, another says, I cannot trust. Another, but I cannot hope. Hear me. He received tax collectors and sinners and ate with them. And even prostitutes were not driven from his presence Oh, since God has thus taken man into union with himself, do not be afraid. If I speak to one who by reason of sin has wandered so far away from God that he is even afraid to think of God's name, I urge you to think of him, poor soul, as your friend. And oh, may the Spirit of God open your blind eyes to see that there is no cause for for your keeping away from God except your own mistaken thoughts about him. May you believe that he is able and willing to save to the uttermost. May you understand his good and gracious character, his readiness to pass transgression, iniquity, and sin. And may the sweet influences of grace constrain you to come to him this very morning. May God grant that Jesus Christ may be formed in you, the hope of glory, and then you may well sing glory to God in the highest and on earth and goodwill toward men. Amen. Let's pray.